All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of The Liam McCullum Show. I haven't done a podcast in a very long time. I finished up my final year at the University of Montana in my undergraduate, and I graduated. Um, I was planning on going straight into law school this fall, but I decided to take a year off and kind of um, focus on work and my podcast and everything else I'm doing. I am also doing a lot of work with the Montana Libertarian Party right now with social media and and so on. I was appointed the social media manager and I'm doing other things with the Mises caucus, as I've mentioned before. Um, I After I graduated, I, I went to the Reno convention, uh, participated in what I think was a very historical moment for the Libertarian Party and the Libertarian movement as a whole. I think it's just going to only bring more attention to the Liberty movement and bring more people in. So I'm, I'm very excited for that. And I may have more opportunities um, when it comes to the the Mises Caucus and the Libertarian Party at the national stage. There's some things that I'm that I'm talking about with some people right now, but I just wanted to take a year off and kind of reassess in a year and see if I want to go back to law school and kind of help um, build liberty in the state and also just get a job because I mean I've been in school since kindergarten and I've never had more than three months where I've just been able to, to work a full-time job. Um, and I hate feeling like a kid like that. So <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm finally going to go out and, and, and just have a regular schedule rather than just um, a crappy class schedule that is inconsistent. So um, I'm, I'm very excited for it. I, you know, I, I finally admi admitted to myself that that's what I wanted to do. And it felt like a whole bunch of weight off my shoulders. Um, so I'm not rushing the application process now, and uh, I can kind of sit back and and uh, reflect on what I want to do. Uh, but today, I, I figured that I would do just a solo episode on um, decentralization, specifically through the lens of Roe v. Wade and, and this most recent um, Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Um, so as everyone knows, I'm sure now, on, on Friday, last Friday, the Dobbs decision was released and the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, which had been the precedent in the United States, States since 1973. Um, so this overturning of Roe v. Wade has really motivated me to start thinking about decentralization, nullification, all the different avenues of decentralization and and the ways that we can localize politics. It's been a huge concern of mine for a very long time, probably around four to five years now, maybe six years, that instead of focusing on the politicians at home who actually have an impact on your lives, we continue to delegate authority and delegate sovereignty to people who live 2000 miles away from us. So um, people who live in DC, have control over our lives and we pay more attention to what they do than people in our hometowns, um, people who live next to us. Uh, we, we don't want to solve problems with the people around us. We want to shirk that responsibility and put it on people that, that live in DC. And, and there's some sort of comfort in that, but I think that it is very dangerous. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson talked about how Every government that has gone corrupt is it, it's been attributed to centralizing and consolidating power. 
into one entity. Um, so I just wanted to talk about decentralization. And though I will be talking about Roe v. Wade, um, I think I'm going to do it more from somewhat of a dispassionate perspective rather than of the moral question of abortion. So I'm going to address the legality of it. Um, I'm going to address why I think this is beneficial without really addressing the morality of the abortion question. Um, but before I, I do that, I do want to say that I, I come from a perspective of I, I am pro-life. So I, I'm not going to get into moral questions about why I think um, it's it's right to be pro-life and why I think abortion is murder and should be prohibited. Um, the question is more about decentralization and while, why that is, is good, um, separated from the question of abortion. Uh, so I think by the end of this, I, I will try to have um, made a case that even pro-choice people should be happy with the decentralization of politics. Um, so first, I'm going to address Roe Ro v. Wade, uh, what happened, the implications of the decision of it overturning, um, a little bit about maybe the history of Roe v. Wade uh, to the extent I know it, and then um, after that, just get into the general principle of decentralization. So I'm going to use Roe v. Wade as a lens to explore decentralization and then defend decentralization on principle after, hopefully by the end of this. So the first thing about Roe v. Wade is that my concern with the case separated from the moral question of abortion is that what it essentially did is that it granted authority to the Supreme Court um, that the Supreme Court had not had before. Um, so interestingly, uh, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg was very critical of Roe v. Wade as it happened. And, and many people on the left um, were, were angry with her. There's there's an interview where, Roe, where Ruth is, is talking about how she thought that Roe v. Wade moved too far too fast. So there's a judicial philosophy that is that um, the Supreme Court should respect precedent and move slowly. It should not make very quick decisions. Um, if it makes quick decisions, it has the potential to destroy the integrity of the court because lower courts then have to change the way that they operate and, and so on. So it, it's more out of concern of the integrity of the Supreme Court um, and not really out of a principle, um, like a, a originalist interpretation of the Constitution. But she she was very concerned with the fact that the Supreme Court, instead of just upholding or instead of striking down the Texas law in question in Roe v. Wade, which was very restrictive, she was very worried that Roe v. Wade actually just made um, abortion legal in all 50 states as uh, abortion laws in the country were getting more liberal. Um, so what she thought is that the Supreme Court should move very slowly, just strike down the very restrictive law, and then over time get to a point where um, the Supreme Court can make a final decision. But the fact that that hadn't been precedent before and the Supreme Court, according to the Constitution, had no authority to talk about the abortion issue. Um, 
I think she thought that it, it moved way too fast. And from my perspective, which is much more conservative when it comes to uh, the Supreme Court, um, it, it's more that I there are certain enumerated powers that the Constitution gives to the federal government, and they are enumerated. And the 10th Amendment says that outside of those, everything belongs to the state. And with many criminal things, the question belongs to the state. Um, so the federal government can't say that certain practices in the state are legal or prohibited. Those are questions for um, state police powers. Um, and I think by the Supreme Court hearing this case and even claiming that they have jurisdiction, what the Supreme Court did is they effectively ruled and gave themselves authority to have jurisdiction over a case that the constitution makes no mention of. So um, you often hear people say, well, there is no constitutional right to abortion. That's not to say that um, abortion is prohibited in the country. It's to say that uh, the, fe the constitution makes no mention of it. So the Supreme Court is neutral on it. This is something that, that either people have to pass into law or states have to regulate and decide themselves. So by hearing Roe v. Wade, what effectively happened is there were two questions at hand, and this is acknowledged in the case. Um, they, were, they were balancing the two liberty interests of fetal life and the right to get an abortion. So those, those liberty interests are acknowledged in Roe v. Wade. And effectively, what they were trying to do is, is pick one of them and balance the two liberty interests because they were conflicting. So by the Supreme Court hearing the case, they claim that they had ju jurisdiction to decide between two of those liberty interests, which is a political decision. So effectively, um, Roe v. Wade, I think, harms pro-choice people, too, because what it did is it granted power to the Supreme Court to draw the lines on abortion. And it gave the, the power to the Supreme Court to eventually regulate abortion, too, because imagine if in 1973, instead, what happened was that there was a conservative makeup of the court. And by conservative, I mean they have a conservative judicial philosophy. I don't mean they have conservative values. Those things can be separated. Um, their actual conservative values with their judicial philosophy. So it's entirely possible to have someone who has a uh, liberal judicial philosophy and believes that the Supreme Court is this entity that you can you can kind of um, push policy through and uh, you believe that the Constitution is a living Constitution so you can kind of amend it. You believe that, you know, the Constitution in no way or the, the, the phrase you hear is the framers in no way could have expected that um, the constitution wouldn't change um, because they couldn't have expected, for instance, that we would have technology. Um, so we kind of need to uh, change the constitution over time to fit it with modern applications. Um, so that's, that's kind of the liberal view of the court. Um, so there, it's possible to have that perspective of what the Supreme Court is supposed to do, but also have conservative values, um, con conservative social values. Um, that tends not to be the case 
but I'm saying that logically this is possible. So imagine if 19 in 1973, um, the case Roe v. Wade comes to the Supreme Court and the makeup of the court consists of uh, justices with a liberal judicial philosophy, but conservative values. And Roe v. Wade effectively grants jurisdiction to decide between the two liberty interests of um, fetal life and abortion. And these conservative justices, since they believe that the court is made up of activist judges and they think that's okay, um, they decide to apply the 14th Amendment and the same exact legal reasoning used in Roe v. Wade, but to to ban abortion across all 50 states. So they could either use the Equal Protections Clause of the 14th Amendment, or they could use the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which is um, the clause that was used in Roe v. Wade to legalize abortion across all 50 states. So what they could say is, um, you know, this doctrine of substantive due process, uh, which which allows us to find Uh, what would we say? We would say emanations and penumbras in the constitution that protect fetal life. They say, um, well, the constitution clearly says that you can't take life, liberty, and property without due process. Um, So they say, well, life is obviously protected there. So we can protect fetal life across all 50 states and ban abortion. Um, They could do that, or they could say equal protection clause. They could say, you know, um, we're discriminating against fetal life in this case. We are protecting uh, babies, um, and they can make a classification just out of nowhere and and just push policy through that way. So that it, they could effectively have used the same legal principles and, and legal doctrines to do the exact opposite of what happened in Roe v. Wade in 1973. And what I would say is that I would be against that too because I am opposed to centralization. And what is interesting about this is if if that was the case, and that is what happened in 1973, and for 50 years, abortion was banned in this entire country, and then all of a sudden, 2022 comes along, and you have conservative justices who have a conservative judicial philosophy, but who have conservative values. They come along and they say, well, for how much we agree with the decision, and we abhor abortion and we think that it is an evil we recognize that the constitution makes no mention of abortion it does not give the federal government the ability to regulate it or have a say so we are returning this to the people Um, we are returning this to uh, the people and their legislators and their states Um, what would be funny about that is that it's the same exact legal reasoning the, the, the same exact legal reasoning that was used in Dobbs on Friday, and the left would be celebrating it. And what's funny is that conservatives would likely also be celebrating it too. Um, at the very least, libertarians would be celebrating it because I think we need to be opposed to centralization, even if it goes in the direction um, that we like. So there's this hypothetical case where suppose there was a, a world government and it mandates that everyone has to respect property rights, everyone has to respect liberty. Um, I would move that we should not support that. And I think that the the very practical reason for not supporting it is that we know that authority 
easily easily falls into people's hands that absolutely hate everything we believe. So when imagine this world government then falls into the hand hands of a despotic leader, because the reality of the situation is even if we had a dictator or a slow moving process, like constitutional process in this world government, um, over time, uh, we know that this world is from a Christian perspective fallen. We also know that the world is, you know, very corruptible and that, that things are finite and over time empires collapse over time, governments collapse, they deteriorate, uh, institutions, um, their integrity is in question. They fall apart. And I think the risk is the, the more practical and, and pragmatic risk that we have to acknowledge is that the, these institutions will fall into hands of, in, into the hands of people that we absolutely despise and disagree with. So for however long this institution that is a world government would protect uh, property rights, eventually that won't be the case anymore. And there will be this net that encases the entire world. Um, and now everyone is behind essentially bars and their liberty are their liberty is restricted because uh, you have built this um, cage around yourself. And, you know, for how much I agree with the Supreme Court decision, at least in the sense that um, abortion. So like if the Supreme Court were to have banned abortion for how much I would have agreed with the moral question of the case. Um, I acknowledge that in the case of Roe, Casey, and Dobbs, there's a more fundamental question at hand that goes beyond the abortion question. And that is of how much authority the Supreme Court of the United States should have. Should we increase it or should we decrease it? What Roe and Casey did was increase the power of the Supreme Court and the authority, the jurisdiction. So it's more of a jurisdictional question than I think it is um, an abortion question. Uh, obviously, Roe and Casey were very activists and in, in that they were imposing the, the worldview that the judges liked. But the, the legal reasoning used was because that, that was the moral reasoning. The, but the legal reasoning used was a jurisdictional le legal reasoning. Um, and I'm saying that we should reject that from both sides. Because if you're pro-choice and what happens is instead you wait 50 years after Roe v. Wade and instead um, 2022 comes along and you don't have conservative justices with conservative values. You have liberal justices with conservative values and they just ban abortion across all 50 st states because you set the precedent allowing for the Supreme Court to decide between the two liberty interests. Because the truth is, and I think most people and ethicists who are focusing on the abortion question are acknowledging that the viability case for abortion is going to make, or the viability element of abortion is going to make, um, and the medical advancements are going to make this abortion question very complicated over time. And I think, you know, Rowan Casey, I, th I think it was eventually Casey that established the um, principle of viability and, and clearly defined it. And the thing is, is that if that is the very arbitrary, um, you know, line that you're drawing, viability moves a lot. <laughs> like 
uh, we are going, we have these medical advancements that it, it will be in probably 10 years possible for babies to grow and, and live outside of the womb. That's, that's an entire possibility. And then if, if that is your condition that you're basing the entire legal doctrine on, you know, it becomes very shaky. So that's all to say, like, I think that the, the moral question here is going to change a lot over time. And the real question that we need to be acknowledging in Roe, Casey and Dobbs is the jurisdictional question. Um, because as these moral questions advance, I think that we need more leniency to be able to experiment and to be able to have these ethical conversations and to figure out where the lines are. But if you have a fixed one size fits all solution imposed down on all 50 states by one body of nine people, I think what, what we run the risk of is just not having the freedom and the, the liberty to really associate and, and voluntarily associate with people that we agree with that have the same ethical um, standards that we do. And, you know, we, we would run the risk of not being able to have, <clears throat> we would run the risk of not being able to um, have experimentation with policy. So, you know, it, it's often described as the, the federal system as um, the ability to have laboratories of democracy. And I think by consolidating power into the Supreme Court, we totally removed the, the, the possibility for um, different states to have different policies and us to really find the line, you know, like for how pro-life I am, there are so many people in this country who, you know, are very moderate, you know, they, it's more of like a safe, legal and rare standard. Um, and I think that we need to have more flexibility. And the way that you do that is to localize and decentralize. And, and I think another benefit of decentralization is that it, it's a defense of your own values. It's not necessarily an endorsement of the other people's values and, and a tolerance of it. So for, for how much I think that abortion is evil, by saying that I think that we should decentralize and that people should go into New York and people should go into California um, and, and everyone who believes in abortion should just live in those states and they should do whatever they want. That's not me saying that I endorse what they're doing. I think it's evil. What I'm saying is that I'm giving myself the power to carve out a part of this world, a part of this country where my values are preserved and where I know that my values will be recognized and where I can associate with people that I agree with. Now, I know that states are still really big. Like, I, my ideal would be to decentralize even more, uh, make it a county issue, make it a city issue. Um, because I think that both sides, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, should recognize that, you know, there is another side that wants to wield power and crush your worldview. So to accept decentralization is not to, like I said, endorse their worldview, but to kind of declare a truce because you know that down, down the road, 
they will use violence against you if you remain in the same political um, dimension. Declare a truce on the federal dimension, the, the federal scale, and then pull back and preserve your worldview at a local level, and then begin changing hearts and minds by implementing policies that make sense, that are convincing, um, and actually using you know, arguments and care and um, being able to talk to people about issues. Because I think that what, what happens when we nationalize these topics is that it becomes, because there's so much at stake and because we've essentially nationalized politics, what ends up happening is the, the stakes are very high and it becomes more argumentative. Like we're, we're fighting over one presidential position, just the presidency, the presidency, um, because the, they have more and more authority over our lives that we begin to miss each other when we're talking because there's no ability for us to just carve out a space in our lives where we live with people that we agree with. There's no breathing room and it becomes very consequential who sits on the Supreme court. Um, it becomes very consequential who becomes the president because there's just so much at stake. So instead, if we just roll it back, we take a breath from both sides, we can begin to actually have a dialogue on these issues. And I think things will become less vitriolic over time. So for how much people are protesting right now and for how much um, people are out in the streets. But the, the funniest thing is that uh, people are protesting in California, even though abortion will remain legal in California. They're, you know, rioting in California when they they could go to other states that are pro-life um, and and, you know, advocate for pro-choice people there. And, you know, maybe pro-life people should go to pro-choice states and advocate for pro-life in those states. Um, but also maybe, um, it would be the right thing just to, uh, not do that and to, you know, sit back in your state and create culture in your state that you agree with. Um, because I do think that decentralization is a peaceful remedy. I think that the path of this country, I think most people are recognizing that a national conflict is possible. As we continue to increase authority, you know, in the presidency, we have more and more accusations of elections being stolen. We have more and more accusations of, you know, people being evil and like people calling for people's lives. I mean, as soon as this Supreme Court decision came through on Friday, um, people were calling for Clarence Thomas's death. You know, there was a photo of Donald Trump and um, his cut off head. I forget who that actress was. So instead, if we just declared a truce on the federal level and we said these issues that divide us are going to continue to divide us. And if if they remain a question that exists on this national stage. Things will get more violent. I, th I think we need to acknowledge that and just maybe. Yeah, just declare a truce on the, the national stage so we can sit back and, you know, red states will get redder, blue states will get bluer. Um, people who are in red states will probably move to blue states if they disagree. And if they don't have the capability to because they're poor 
you know, we have the the capability in this country to create peaceful solutions for that nonprofits. We have the ability to, you know, I mean, states can implement policies too, but that wouldn't be my preference. But like California and, and New York are talking about funding people to get to blue states if they need an abortion. And corporations are already saying that they're going to offer up to, I think, like $5,000 um, to their employees if, if they need to travel to go get an abortion. So like, all I'm suggesting is that we take these current questions out of the most consequential political realms and we just roll them back because I think that that will be beneficial to everyone. So I've tried to make this more of a dispassionate look at it. Um, if, if I am passionate, it's towards decentralization. Um, you know, I've, I've tried to separate my moral views from the decentralization question, which is what I think the Supreme Court should have done initially in 1973. I think that they made a grave mistake in guaranteeing abortion to 50 states while these states were actually liberalizing their laws, because then I think they made a very false promise and a false, a false promise of security to these people. Um, and now that they've ruled that they're neutral on the issue, which is what they did. They didn't say that you, you didn't, they didn't declare that abortion is banned across all 50 states. They said the Supreme Court is neutral on it. It's up to the states. I think by doing that, um, after 50 years of having abortion legal in this country, it, it really, you know, people are saying that they were deprived of a right, which isn't the case. The states will end up being the ones who regulate the issue if, if they do, but that's not necessary. There will be states that don't, like California and New York. But the security, that the guarantee that they gave the people, the pro-choice people in the 1973, I think just pacified them. You know, it, you know, it, it really goes to the entire lesson that I've been talking about, that over time, you know, who, fi who fills those institutions will change. And it was totally possible that down the road, conservative justices would have banned abortion across all 50 states. It would have been the outcome that I liked. I would have liked the moral decision there. But there is still a moral element involved that, that deals with sovereignty and delegating your, your sovereignty and, and your responsibility to some board and consolidating authority to some board filled with people who wear robes for a living and yeah, just ceding some of your own personal responsibility over to them. Um, so I think that, you know, that, that is something that we, we really need to um, step away from. And I think that over time um, I think it, it's totally possible that in six months, people aren't as, um, radicalized over this issue because really, you know, people who live in blue states will continue to live in blue states and people who live in red states will continue to live in red states. And if they, if they agree with their policies. And I also think that fundamentally the, the, um, moral question and the moral conversation will begin to actually advance forward. Um, to get into just a, just a little aside about my own personal views that has nothing and is not dependent on everything that I've said so far, you know, I think that we have got caught up in 
you know, high time preference behaviors, high credit environments with the Federal Reserve lowering interest rates and just handing out money and, you know, having all of this abundance because of this artificial growth. And, um, you know, I think what we've created is a culture that is so focused on material and bodily pleasure and being able to satisfy your wants whenever you want. Um, that I think that as uh, the institutions start to shake a little more, um, as the economy starts to break apart, you know, as the moral question of abortion gets challenged, I think that people are actually going to end up reevaluating a lot of their their values. I think they will be kind of required to by the nature of things, um, by the nature of just the natural laws, like as as the economy gets weaker and as we don't have abundance, people are going to start paying attention to their local towns more. Um, the issues that are more fundamental that I think are more of a North star or should be the North star for a lot of people, which, you know, is religion for me. But I think that even if people aren't religious, they will start to pay attention to family more. They will be more grateful for what's on their table. Um, and maybe what will come with that is less, you know, licentious and libertine behaviors and people will begin to value life more. Um, and this is all to say that, you know, for those people who are pro-life, don't look to government like the pro-choicers did for the last 50 years. Try to actually advance culture, try to influence people in your homes, in your neighborhoods, um, you know, in, in your churches, in the organizations you run, try to have a sense of understanding and realize that part of the reason that abortion has become like oxygen in this country, it's present and everyone has be, been desensitized to it is because we've cre created this culture. This, this was something that happened gradually. Um, and we are now at a point where it just seems like a norm, but that will change. That can change. Um, so that's just to say, let's not return to um, enforcing our values down on people from the Supreme Court or Congress. Um, let's try to influence people at home and influence the people that we see daily when we go to work, you know, when, when we're living our um, daily lives. I think that this is the way forward where the, the you know, the 20th century was kind of the uh, modernization of the progressive era, Woodrow Wilson. Um, and with that came centralization. I think that we can make the 21st century a century of decentralization and, you know, voluntary association. And I don't think that that um, naturally has the tendency to uh, um, agree with one particular worldview. I think that all worldviews can benefit from that, even if you vehemently disagree with the other side. I think that it is fundamentally better to have a society where you can carve out a little space in the country and preserve a little bit of good and be that one place and that, you know, um, what do you call it? A, a light on a hill um, where, where you're the only one standing up for good than to have a system that imposes darkness across all 50 states. So whatever side that you fall on, 
I think that it is better to create systems that allow for that flexibility than to grow the power of the institution such that there's no ability for dissenters, there is no ability for people to create sanctuaries for their beliefs. And, you know, you run the risk of having one side of the political debate, you run the risk of the side that's not your own being able to crush you because while you were an authority, you grew that institution. Um, so it's, it's just a little bit of wisdom of, you know, like as you're using authority and as you continue to set precedents um, and as you continue to grow power, know that you won't always sit in that position, that everyone will die. Everyone who currently is alive will die and more people will take over those institutions and eventually your world worldview almost by um, necessity will wear away um, and decay from the system. Um, so like to, to kind of talk more about decentralization and the history of decentralization and how I think that it has supported um, freedom and kind of demonstrates what I'm talking about right now. And the more profound example um, that I always go to is when Wisconsin nullified the Fugitive Slave Act. The Fugitive Slave Act essentially nationalized um, slavery and that if a slave crossed state lines, um, they would have to be re returned to their slave owner. Even if a state went from Texas to, and they traveled to South Dakota, Fugitive Slave Act essentially created this police state whereby people were, you know, ordered to return slaves to their slave owners. So Wisconsin, they, they stood up. And I think in one of the most, like I said, profound cases of decentralization, they, they nullified it. And they said that anyone who comes to Wisconsin, um, any free man or free man that, that flees to Wisconsin uh, will become free and, and you will be a sanctuary for uh, here. And I think, you know, often what gets lost about the whole uh, history of the Civil War discussion is that a lot of people um, look to the South as examples of decentralization and localization, but um, they're actually a perfect example of centralization. Uh, part of the reason that they wanted to secede from the United States is that the federal government wasn't forcing Northerners, Northern states, to follow federal law. So what ended up happening after um, the Confederation became a conglomerate of states again, is that the Confederate Confederacy, the Constitution, didn't allow any state in the Confederacy to then ban, ban slavery. So it became very centralized, even within the system that broke off from the United States. And I mean, that's all to make the case that I don't think that the Confederacy is the example of decentralization, nullification, or secession that people make it out to be. I think the better case is states like Wisconsin, who really stood up to power, and they were that that light, you know, the the good in the only good that really existed in in a country that was filled with darkness. So I think that's that's kind of the lesson. And there, you know, there are many historical examples um, that I could point to, even before. The United States became a thing like, you know, uh, the city of Magdeburg, 
pushing back against the Roman Empire. Um, you know, there are cases like in, in Montana that I think are that, that are great. So the real IDs, uh, Governor Schweitzer um, stood up to the real IDs and said that we would not accept real IDs in Montana. And I mean, how many years has it been? We still don't have real IDs in Montana. Some people do, but you're not required to. And, you know, they threatened to pull funding and he called their bluff. So I think that as a general principle, principle, we should agree with localization, even when, you know, it's at the risk of losing ground on the national stage. Um, you know, so two of my favorite uh, or two of the biggest influences on me, Murray Rothbard and Ron Paul. Um, they were on opposite sides of the abortion question. So Ron Paul was pro-life. Um, Murray Rothbard was pro-choice. Uh, Ron Paul was pro-life because he delivered, I think, hundreds of babies during his career, and he witnessed a, an abortion, and it had, you know, a, a profound effect on him. Um, you know, Murray Rothbard had a more philosophical uh, answer to abortion, and um, I think it was that he that babies can't appeal for their rights. I, I don't remember specifically what his argument is, but um, what matters is that they were on different sides, but what they agreed on is that they shouldn't centralize power. So there's an introduction. I think it's um, I think it's ethics of liberty where Hoppe is talking about Rothbard and he says for how pro-choice he was, he he would have disagreed with Roe v. Wade because it centralized authority into the Supreme Court. And then when Ron Paul was running for president, he was asked by, uh, I think it was a Republican commentator, why he didn't support um, a national amendment prohibiting abortion, which I think constitutionally, you it would have to be an amendment, even though Democrats want to pass a bill uh, legalizing it. Um, I think it would have to be an amendment because, again, it's not mentioned in the Constitution. The only way that you can really do it, I think, is through the Commerce Clause, but you really have to bend it. And I mean, it's not like the Supreme Court hasn't done that before, though. So um, but the current makeup, I think, would strike down a law that that uh, legalize abortion in this country. Um, but even when confronted with the constitutional way to do it with an amendment, um, Ron Paul opposed it. He said, you know, I'm not not a big fan of big government. You know, like that power can be taken from you, can be used against you if you grow it. Uh, we should be opposed to centralization. And I think that that, you know, there's a those two people really show the wisdom in the concept of decentralization that like they could fundamentally disagree on the moral question, but have peace and come to an agreement that they're going to declare an, a, a truce in the realm where political coercion is used, you know, libertarianism, it's concerned with only one question, and that is what is the legitimate use of violence? And their answer is in defense, after someone has initiated violence against you or initiated force against you, you can use violence in response. So there's there's unity and there, there's kind of a balance there. That's, that's the appeal. And I mean, it's really why it's beautiful. And you know, on the question of violence, Ron Paul, Murray Rothbard declared a truce, even though they disagreed with this, this more the morality of this. They said, 
you know, we should decentralize power. We should try to, you know, rid the world of as much aggression as possible if we can. Um, and I think that that just shows how kind of beautiful the concept of, of, uh, um, nullification and decentralization and localization, whatever term you want to use. I, I think it's just a, a beautiful concept that I hope can, you know, bring the left and the right together on the political questions and the jurisdictional questions. You know, I don't think we will ever agree on the moral questions, but hopefully we can agree that violence and the use of coercion to force each other um, to accept our worldview is actually, you know, for how utilitarian and how um, beneficial that might be to us in the short term, in the long term, it's going to be very harmful to our cause because eventually different people will take um hold of that office ethical considerations will change and then we have we made the fatal error of growing power to then be crushed by it later so i hope to do more conversations on the question of decentralization hopefully interview more people and um about it who who agree um and also then you know actually demonstrate my, you know, and, and actually live out my principles by interviewing people at the local level who are advancing the cause of liberty here. Um, so I'm, I'm planning on doing more interviews about judicial accountability in Montana. Um, there are many bills that are being passed in Montana or being introduced in Montana that have nullified power. There are many that I missed in 2021 that got passed that I would love to cover too. Um, I think they're evergreen since they are now law, and I think they're pretty um, uh, extraordinary bills. But then also I, I am getting in contact with many people in Montana who are legislators. Um, also, Lee Deming, who I've had on the show before, he was elected to House District 55. There's no Democrat running in the race, and he won his primary. Um, so I'm going to have him more on the show. And I'm also going to be hopefully working with him on um, legislation and getting things passed in Montana that I think will help decentralize power. Um, states have the capability to nullify uh, federal law and localize federal law. So um, an example is uh, there was this bill passed, I think, in 2021 that said, I think it was 2021, um, that said that no official in the state so no state or local official can um, assist federal officers in the enforcement of certain gun control in the state. So I think I think they define this pretty broadly. So that's federal rules. Um, so like ATF rules, that's legislation, that's um, uh, what would it be? Executive orders. Um, so now certain you know, uh, regulations at the federal level will not be enforced by uh, state officials or local officials. Um, so that's an example where in relation to the federal government, we do have the ability to, and the power really to uh, nullify and, and reject things that are happening in a centralized manner. Um, an argument that is made is there's only 
a limited amount of ATF officials. Um, and often they have to rely on localities to follow through with um, these regulations and, and to serve warrants and stuff like this. Uh, it's the same with marijuana. That's why marijuana is still illegal on the federal level, but states ignore it and they get by. Um, so those are those are ways that we can move forward and, and a principle that I think we can move forward on on things um, in our state that we agree with. Um, and I think, you know, that that ATF bill, it centralized power in one sense, it took power away from localities. And I think that there is an argument that maybe we allow cities like Missoula to develop their own um, rules. And, you know, if if it becomes so tyrannical that people want to move away from Missoula, then we can create systems and organizations that can help people do that because the rest of the state is red. Um, so yeah, I, I, I hope that I have made a convincing case for centralization on principle. Um, I've tried to appeal to historical examples and um, practical examples and why it might be the moral, practical, um, you know, historical thing to do. And I hope I made a good case. And, you know, if you like this episode, give it a like on YouTube or whatever platform you're listening to it on, share it around, start a conversation in the comment section, uh, leave a review of my podcast, depending on the platform you're on. Um, also follow me on social media. Um, I'm at M L I A M McCollum on Twitter. Um, I, wanted to do this podcast because I, I went viral on Twitter. I got, I think it was, I think it ended up with around 70,000 likes on, on Twitter. I'll post a tweet here for people who are watching, but people who are listening over audio um, it's a, I'm quoting AOC and I say the right to our bodies does not belong to nine Supreme court justices. And then I uh, have SCOTUS responding saying that's literally what we said. And it's currently at 69.7 thousand likes. It got, uh, 681 quote tweets and 14,000 retweets. I think Ben Shapiro was one of the people who retweeted it, which is just crazy. Um, if, if I, if that happened to me in high school, I would have lost it. I listen to Ben Shapiro all the time in high school, but, uh, I've kind of stepped away from, um, his podcast because we disagree on foreign policy, even though he claims that he's a libertarian. Uh, but that's for a future podcast. Um, like I said, give me a like, subscribe, uh, share this around, follow me on social media, and I hope to see you next time.